Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this message, the first in a new series called Signs of the Times. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. week of celebrating me. That's always fun. Don't you like to be celebrated? So thank you everybody that celebrated me this week and has wished me happy birthday. I know that May is a uh, busy month. There's a lot of things going on in May. Lots of birthdays. Lots of people uh, born in May. It's a wonderful time of year to be born. Uh, it's a changing of the seasons. We notice that the, the weather uh, has become quite warm. Uh, but I love how even in the midst of when it seems like something has set in on you that just like that stuff can change. Y'all wake up this morning and went outside to read my word and I was like, whoa, I'm gonna go back inside. Why I'm wearing the pullover. Maybe one more week with a pullover. <laughs> so, anyways, you know, I just, I just so thankful to God for his faithfulness and for his presence. How about you? For the Holy Spirit that guides us and walks us through our everyday life. Has anybody had that kind of a week where the Holy Spirit just speaks, where you just wake up in the morning and all the thoughts that you had are kind of washed out and you just sense the Holy Spirit on your thought life and on your ability to really see and kind of put on the glasses of the Holy Spirit? Has anybody ever experienced that? Maybe this week, maybe this morning? How would you like to do that this morning? How would you like to see through the lenses of the Holy Spirit, see how heaven sees our situation? Would that be okay? All right, so why don't we invite the Holy Spirit so I can do it and I'm gonna do it, but just in your own way, in your own words, just take a moment to just invite the Holy Spirit. I know know that you're hungry to receive the word of the Lord, you're hungry to receive direction from the Lord to really just taste heaven this morning. So let's do that. So Lord, I'm, I'm just so grateful for your faithfulness. Lord, I'm thankful that we're not just uh, wandering around in this world aimlessly and without hope and without a clue, Lord, but yet you have brought us into the family of God. Lord, you've made us your very own treasured possession. You've ransomed us, as Matthew said, With the blood of Christ, you've purchased us and you've translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your dear son. And Lord, now we live and we abide in you and through you, Lord, we walk out the victory that Christ has given us. Lord, you've given us the power of all the universe that is Jesus's and Jesus's alone to walk in victory to see lives change, to see darkness overcome. Lord, you've called us, you've actually placed your very spirit inside of us that we would burn like a fire. Lord, in a dark place, that there would be light for the rest of the world. Lord, you called us and you said that we are cities on a hill. You, t- you told your disciples that a city on a hill can't be hidden. 
and weary journeyers, sojourners on their, uh, on their way walk in dry places. They look and they can see afar off a city that's set on a hill. And go, man, there's water there, there's life there, there's community there, there's food there. If I could just make it. Lord, you said that, that we're a light, that we're the light of the world. With you living inside of us, Lord, we are the light of the world. And Lord, nobody puts, lights a lamp and puts a bowl over the top of it just so that the light could be there. No, they put it on a high place so that everybody in the room can see. And so, Lord, we embrace the, you, Holy Spirit. We invite you, Holy Spirit. Y'all just invite the Holy Spirit to come. We invite you into our lives, every moment of our lives, to illuminate us so that we would give light and life to the rest of the world that surrounds us. And Lord, we thank you that you are the light of men and that you have come and the darkness has never been able to put it out. As the Apostle John so eloquently quoted or stated in his gospel, chapter one. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the word of God. And the beginning was the word. <laughs> and the word was with God. And the word was God. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be in the form of the Father, that we have a good Father, and of the Son, our mighty Savior, our Deliverer, our conquering King, and of the Holy Spirit, the presence that is tangibly alive inside of us, on top of us, and all around us at all times. And we thank you most of all, Lord, that the word was made flesh and you dwelt among us so that we wouldn't be stuck like others that could get on board with the idea of a salvation or a religious experience that ties all of humanity into this idea of a transcendent God, but that is not personal. No, Lord, you became flesh and you dwelt among us. You gave your very flesh for us. It reminded of us, reminded us that as we break bread, that your body is broken for us and your life poured out so that we can be a part of that one loaf, part of your body, physically here in this earth, Lord, to manifest your glory. So won't you come, Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us today with your word. Illuminate our understanding, Lord, to see you more clearly. Just surrender this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. That's better. <laughs> you know, it's funny, when I get ready to preach sometimes, I, I, I think I can write a book. I start writing notes. And I can write a book. My, my notes, and I was like, Dad, why are your notes like eight pages long or whatever? <laughs> and I've learned that, you know, there's, there's so much that can be said, but it's, it's really something to step into the presence of the Holy Spirit and actually go where he wants to go. And so there's this tension sometimes when we get to speak or minister that we have things that we know that we want to say, but I, I really want the Holy Spirit to be on what I have to say today. And so today is the start of a new series that I've 
haven't made a bunch of hoopla over because it's just such a strange thing to talk about the end times, but I, I think it's important to uh, make a statement I've heard recently uh, from a, a church. I'm actually helping a, a small church get started. They asked me to be their uh, apostolic oversight, and they're right down the street. And, you know, it's okay to do that, to, like, support other churches, you know, like we're all in this together. Um, but as they were getting started and trying to find out who they are and get their specific identity, it's been fun to watch them grow and watch the Holy Spirit just get all over uh, what he's doing, what he's called that body to do in their assignment. But they had said that uh, in their building their website and all that, that, um, that it's popular today for people to have an eschatological statement on their website alongside of their statement of faith. And we do not have an eschatological statement uh, on our website. So I don't know if, you know, I need to get with the times or what, but... Um, you know, when, when COVID hit, we had, we had uh, well, a much larger crowd <laughs> sitting in the pews. Uh, but I know that a lot of people, um, really throughout history, anytime something uh, very big and very public happens to the masses, or oftentimes to us, tragedy or trauma happens to us personally, uh, we really wrestle with what does this mean? Why is this happening to me? Why is this challenging my understanding of my good, good father? Why am I suffering or why are we seeing things that are threatening and don't seem to line up with how we understand the goodness of God? And just being honest, there was, uh, and I won't mention any names, but some folks left the church uh, because they were really kind of panicking about the, the pandemic and wanted me to preach out of the book of Revelation and wanted to go there. Like, let's, let's use a lot of energy. Let's talk about, uh, you know, helicopters and uh, the beasts. So let's talk about the nations and the 10 horns and the, uh, the little, little horns on top of the other horns and um, Mark of the Beast, 666, the Antichrist, the end of the world. And let's connect that to what we can obviously all see. This must be the end of the world. And every time we see unrighteousness begin to rise up, it's easy to say, well, it's a sign of the times. It's almost become a colloquialism, if I said that word right, in Christianity to say it's a sign of the times, it's a sign of the time, that that would be our response to uh, negative things that we see in, in the culture. And so um, I have studied eschatology for a very long time and kind of beat it up from every angle, I think. And um, so but I've never actually preached. And, and Lauren says, oh, you do this every week. And I think I do sprinkle stuff in every week, but I've never actually set out to tell you eschatologically uh, and build a case for the way that we believe and why we believe that and how our eschatology ought to kind of come together. And I, I think it's very important to kind of look back at history and understand where it started and what people believed and what they've believed, and even in our recent church history in the last 200 years. Most of what we have uh, for a framework of how we see the last days, so the word uh, eschatology comes from the word eschaton, which means last things. And so when we talk about that, we're talking about the end of time or the last, the last days. And uh, there's, the Bible has a lot to say about this stuff. 
And so I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm just going to give you the straightforward answer about my eschatology as your pastor and really how I will begin to unpack this over the next couple of weeks. But just that the signs of the times, a good eschatological understanding, and when I say that, a good understanding of the last days matters because it always begs the question, what are we supposed to do? And that's really what prompts this. How long, O Lord, you see in the book of Revelation, as we try to endure, as we deal with the pressures on the outside, you know, as we're sitting here in his presence in the church, in a worship service and listening to sermons and the presence of the Holy Spirit seems to be so tangibly manifest. It's in that moment that as the outside world presses in, we say, Lord, what are we supposed to do? And so really things like our, our mission as the global church and our mission as a, a, a local church are impacted by how we understand the uh, way we see the future rolling out. And even what it means to be saved, sozoed, rescued, delivered. And so doctrines and um, theology are very much centered around and built around the way in which we interpret the Bible and, and these subject matters. So eschatology matters, that in, and that way I think it matters because if you see it a certain way, then your purpose in life rolls out like this. I think that it, it does matter. So signs of the times, when I say that, a good eschatology is that you are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. And that you are called to be a sign that we are all, because we are beacons of light, the glory of God has risen upon you and kings will come to the light of your burning. That that is good eschatology that no matter how the events of the world play out, that we actually have the resurrected Christ and resurrection life and the power of God bubbling up inside of us. Now, we can actually live in the spirit and that person, or we can choose to wake up and not embrace the work of the Holy Spirit. And so being baptized in the Holy Spirit means a little bit more than just a one-time event where you got rocked with the power of God and shook on the floor, okay? Because baptism, the word baptizo means to repeatedly dip, to be immersed, to be so immersed that you're completely changed. And so I think that baptism is not just a one-time event. Baptism is something that we're constantly being uh, saturated in saturated in the Holy Spirit because he's alive on the earth today and he does it through the body of Christ. And it's always been his desire to fill his people with his glory, to change the whole entire planet so that he will dwell with man here. So it's that kind of a foundation that we need to take into an approach to what the end times look like. So yeah, there I, <laughs> there I am. I did that this morning. Obviously, you can see I'm wearing these clothes, but I had a, done a video out by the sign that was a precursor for this whole series, and uh, Pastor Matthew was videoing it. But this morning, he's in a, I think it's a triathlon or something he's doing this morning. Uh, so anyways, I'm all about that. Like, you know, we don't need to just be lights in here. We need to be lights out there too. 
and uh, the Lord's building relationships and allowing, uh, I mean, allowing him to do something he loves while he actually impacts the world around him, so it's good. But uh, so yeah, I had Roman go, let's just take a picture. There's a street sign right there. But it was nothing more uh, manifest of this reality than uh, a week or two ago when we did the National Day of Prayer and I was, me and Margie and, and Dave and some of the other guys were standing out on the street just waving at folks, you know, and in the spirit there is this thing I realized that we could actually push the Holy Spirit, that you can manifest the Holy Spirit and actually push him out into the street that I could tell if we were just standing there with a sign, which would be good, but if it was just a sign that says, you know, free prayer over here or whatever, people tend to not really look. But if you're actually letting your light shine, and I was actually like, I bless you in the name of Jesus. I bless your families. I pray your business are blessed to manifest the life of Christ and to shove the Holy Spirit out in the street. Almost every person that passed by couldn't stand to not smile at me and wave back at me, either because I'm a fool or because they actually experienced just this tangible presence of the Lord. They don't even know what it is, but they're like, like a weary traveler that sees a city on a hill and goes, oh, thank God, there's the city. That's, there's, there's, there's life there. There's water. There's food. There's community. There's everything I need. That we're actually called to be those beacons of light no matter what. That you are the signs of the times. When I get into the word times, do you realize that the Lord promised us eternal life. Most religions focus on and promise life after death in some form or another, whether you come back as another animal or whatever, you know, or another person in another stage. That would be Hinduism or reincarnation. That, um, but typically they focus on life after death. But, you know, that's not the Christian faith. Do you realize that? Our hope is not in life after death. He didn't say that. I'll give you eternal life. Eternal life and life after death are not the same thing. And if we're being honest, some of our Christianity has embraced the influence of other religions and allowed us to get into a place where our thinking is based on a life after death situation. It's so much more than life after death. It's eternal life, meaning life unto the age. And so if you've been here a while, you've heard me preach this before, broke down the word eternal life, but it's God's own life. That when you're born again, you become born of the Spirit and you step over to the other side into the life of God where the timing of God, because he stands outside of time, interacting with all time at the same time, no beginning, no end, doesn't need anything. He's this self-existent one that we step over into his presence and become one with him and we're born of the Spirit so that time's not really an issue anymore. And most of the latter church that we're walking in today has embraced doctrines that are all concerned about the slicing and dicing of time to try to figure out when's all this suffering gonna be over. And I mean, it's a fair question to ask, how long, O oh Lord? How long will the unrighteous and the lawless plague the people of God? But Christ has made us one with him so that now we live through the power of the risen Savior that his righteousness attributed to us is what we have now become slaves to righteousness. When we were 
in the world, we were actually slaves to sin. In other words, we didn't really have a whole lot of choice. We just did it, and we were like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it. It's like Romans chapter 5. But now it says that we're slave to righteousness because of grace. Sin reigned through death, but now, Alan, help me out. Grace reigns through righteousness. You, you now are not governed. You're governed by grace. You're not governed by sin. Not governed by the fact of death, even though we're still in this overlap where we are going, our bodies will die. But you have already come back into the place when Adam and Eve were told that when you eat of the fruit, when you rebel, you'll surely die. But yet they didn't die right away. They lost the Zoe, the life of God, God's very own life. And now we have been born of the life of God. So that no matter what happens to your physical body, we're waiting for the resurrection, the full consummation of the kingdom of God. So let's look at a little bit of scripture. So most of the way that we build eschatology um, opinions about eschatology comes right out of the book of Revelation because it's a very different book. Would anybody agree with me? How many, how many people read the book of Revelation and understand it? <laughs> I got it, boss. I got it. <laughs> Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Before I even read this, there's something you need to know about Scripture, that Scripture was written by many different people out of many different times and many different cultures. And it was put together, all 66 books of the Bible put together and put into the canon, we call it, what we have is the Bible, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is telling one story from front to back. That's why it was included. That's why... Uh, in 300 AD that the, the church fathers actually got together and said, no, these are the books we're going to use. Even though there are other books that very much influence the people of God, uh, they weren't considered to be inspired by the Holy Spirit the same way that these are. And that's why these are our, excuse me, these are the books that we read from. But they're not all the same. The literary styles are not all the same because it was like a 1,500-year span that they were written. Do you realize that language in the way that people communicate changes over time because of cultures and situations that people are in. The, the book of Revelation is in, um, it's called the genre that that is. Uh, it's, a, it's a style of writing called apocalyptic. It says, right, says so right at the beginning. The title is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And yet we know that the apostle John wrote it, so it's kind of the apocalypse of of John, but there were many apocalyptic writings uh, from the time period of about um, 500 years BC. And apocalyptic writing was a style of writing uh, that the Jews actually picked up from the Persians when they were in exile. And the difference, the difference is, you know, before that, so from like uh, 750 to 500, 
you had the prophetic writings. So you had, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and all those guys and Micah and Amos and Nahum. So you had the prophets, right? You hear about uh, the Old Testament being all about the law and the prophets. So that middle period of time there, the prophetic word was to, uh, prophets spoke to the people of God and to also rulers of nations, warning them and inviting them into repentance uh, because of the impending doom of not just God wanting to crush people, but of eating the fruit of their ways. You know, that, that's why the prophetic writings were there. But you start to notice as those prophecies began to become true, right, around 500 AD, when the children of Israel had had their awesome season of having sovereignty, of having a nation of their own, being able to have their own rulership, but by embracing surrounding cultures and worshiping other gods alongside of their God, and as a matter of fact, beginning to forget Yahweh and his ways and his principles and his rules and his, the ways that he had lined out in the law for them to live, it began to bring them into bondage first to spiritual bondage, but then the physical bondage that is soon to follow by having other nations overwhelm you and overtake you. So that's what uh, the prophetic was always about, was a, a warning and a call to repentance to turn around for the nations, specifically the people of God, the children of Israel. Uh, and oftentimes there would be uh, decrees of uh, destruction or whatever spoken over some other nation that had been oppressive. Well, you start getting down around 500 BC and those things began to become true. Uh, and the children of Israel did wind up getting taken over by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Medes and the Persians, and there were different empires that took over, imprisoned them, enslaved them, ransacked the holy city, tore down the walls, took them away, changed their culture, changed their language, changed the way that they transact business, the way that they did everything. And you know that we look at some of those mid-periods where they were allowed, like the book of Esther and, and uh Nehemiah and all that, where they were allowed to come back and have some space to worship their God as they repented. But there was a shift that went from prophetic to apocalyptic, and you see it uh, pop up in like Daniel 7 through 12. And so often and in Ezekiel, often when people uh, try to come up with eschatologies, um, they will take the book of Revelation, and obviously you can take Ezekiel and Daniel and those books and connect them because a lot of what John is saying in the book of Revelation is he's quoting those books, those repurposed materials. Matter of fact, almost all of the New Testament is repurposed material from the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament matters because you would need to know what they're talking about when they're referencing it to even know that how they're shining light on it. So anyways, let that be uh, just a motivator to study your Bible. It's so exciting. It is absolutely so exciting. But one of the things that's really key in Bible study, um, you know, we did a, uh, a class, a biblical foundation class uh, about a month ago, and it was a lot of fun. We were kind of figuring out, getting our feet under us and how we do it. But uh, I, um, there was a biblical contextualization class. And one of the the, probably the only thing that I said or the best thing that I said in that particular class 
is when it comes to interpreting and understanding the Bible, which is really every generation's um, task at hand, it's important for us to understand, uh, but is exegesis and hermeneutics. And so exegesis is the ability to look at what the Scripture is saying, and there's tools that we talked about about how to do that, but what is it actually saying? And then hermeneutics is what do you do with what it's saying? How do you apply that to your life now? So I'm going to tell you one thing about exegesis. So when you're reading the Bible, this is the biggest and most important thing. It can never mean something that it didn't mean to the people it was written to. It has to first mean that before it can mean something else to us. Because every book of the Bible was specifically written to somebody, to a people in a particular place, with a particular culture, with a particular dilemma going on. And so that's exegesis, to find out what that is, to like dig in. We have so much more information today because of archaeological discovery, because of linguistics of ancient languages, especially ancient languages that surrounded the people of Israel. We had the Dead Sea Scrolls get uncovered in the caves of Qumran, which was a community that actually stashed away and they were perfectly preserved for thousands of years and they matched all the manuscripts that we had. That's huge. And today with computers and the ability to like stack stuff on top and, and discover, we actually know a little bit more today than we did 40 or 60 years ago or let's say 200 years ago when some of the doctrines that we still have hanging over the church today that are influencing how we believe, we keep beating the drum even though we've discovered that maybe that's not what that actually meant. And I know that it's a little bit risky for me to stand up here and try to shift your perspective about some of this stuff, but I think we've gotten to a place where you trust me. So, It can never mean something that it didn't mean to the people it was written to. Why would God have one of his people filled with the Holy Spirit write a letter to somebody that they'd be like, I have no idea what this means. That's zero application in my life. Oh, I bet in 2,000 years, it's talking about airplanes and helicopters. Impossible. God would not do that. He's just not gonna do that. So what does it mean? Let's look at Revelation 1.1, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Did I talk enough about the genre of apocalypse? Apocalyptic writing is not, is not the same as, as a flat writing, as telling a story. It's a telling a story in very vivid symbolic imagery. It's kind of like when we say you have different genres in um, the media today, you have uh, horror movies and dramas, and Noah calls them splody movies. You know, we like to watch the movies where they have big explosions, <laughs> the guns and all that. That's a, that's a genre of, of a way, and every type of genre is actually using different ways to communicate the things that they want to communicate. I used to let my kids watch stuff that their other kids at school were watching. As a believer, I thought it was important uh, not to try to shelter them, because my mom and dad did that. That, that wasn't very helpful because I went to school and I was just a complete 
in the dark about cultural stuff. And it wasn't healthy because I didn't know how to, I was just like, we're supposed to be holy, but I didn't know what, you know, even what that meant. So it didn't work very well for me. Instead, I rebelled hardcore. But uh, anyways, um, I wanted our kids, I said, yeah, you can watch. I mean, obviously, we're not going to let them watch something R-rated or something like that. But we let them watch the different things. And I said, I, I will let you watch this if I can watch it with you. And then tell you at the end, let me give you the commentary about what that message is actually saying. And so we'd watch whatever message. And it was like long before I was ever a preacher, I would stand up just like this in front of the family after the TV was off and tell them, now, this is what the voice of the world is saying through this film. That did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see that? And they'd be like, oh my gosh. And before it was over, they're all in tears, you know, and God showed up. Okay. So back to this idea of a genre, that apocalyptic writing was a genre. And they began to shift because of the influence of the culture that they were in, in Persia. And so when they were in Persia, that was real common to have apocalyptic everything. And apocalyptic uses these radical ideas um, of imagery and symbolism to convey a message. And typically the message was all about uh, where the prophetic was about repentance so that impending judgment doesn't happen or impending judgment is about to happen. Apocalyptic was always showing like kind of the past, the present, and the future from this perspective of having uh, revelation. In other words, your eyes open to actually see what's going on in the spirit. And to do that with word pictures and uh, graphic images and that sort of thing. Uh, But the, the point of it was always to bring to the people that are enduring and suffering a promise of deliverance and hope and that what they're in right now, because we can look back at what was, what is, and what is to come, because of track record of the faithfulness of God or the moving forward of history, the expectation they could have for hope and for radical change, not just a little bit of change, but a change so dramatic that it looks like the the world ending or something. And so when we talk about the end of the world, you have to understand that biblically, the world is not going to blow up or melt or whatever, even though they use terms like that. It's that the world, the, the, when we use the word ion, that's, that's where we get eternal life. It's unto the age. It's, it's the spirit of the age that dominates a certain framework of time. That that's the, the world, the, a word that gets used in the Bible for world. That that, that Ion is coming to an end, and the ion of God, the ion of his eternal life, of his, the very life of God, has actually crashed in on this world, and there's this violent collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that changes everything. And the theme, the constant theme in apocalyptic, and especially in the book of Revelation, is conquering the victory of God overcoming. Don't give up. Don't give in. I'm so proud of you for standing up to the culture and not allowing the culture to get in the church. I talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. It was Mother's Day. I talked about first love in the book to the Ephesians. That was the first book. 
And I'm going to talk more about the book to the Ephesians probably next week. I'm just laying a, f- a framework right now for our understanding about the end times, about the last days, about the book of Revelation. Y'all with me? <sighs> so the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, this genre of speaking, this way of opening your eyes to see what's happened, what is happening, what's going to happen, which God gave him to show his servants. And that word servants has kind of got a connotation of a bond servant, someone that is not just kind of serving him, but someone that has actually had his, near, his ear nailed to the door and belongs to Christ. A minute ago, I talked about in Romans where we've actually were slaves to sin, but we're actually now slaves of righteousness. That as we step into and walk in the Holy Spirit, we're compelled to walk in righteousness. And it's not about following the law Righteousness, the state of righteousness is God putting to right everything that's wrong with the world. And that that is what God's going to do. Everything that ain't right, he's making right. And he started with you. And he started with me. He's made us right in his eyes. But it's because you're now being governed by grace. The judgment of God is not on you. The favor of God is on you. And you are actually of a new world, a whole new place. You're a whole new creation. It's in that sense that we can say that we're ambassadors of Christ, that we bring heaven to earth. I know we say that a lot around here. Bethel Church has done such an amazing job of changing language that shapes culture. And it really matters that we, as we roll forward with um, our community here and our calling and our assignment as a church, that we begin to understand that the words that we speak, like signs of the times, I'm creating a language. We're creating a language. Language shapes culture. And so uh, Bethel Church has done a really good job of that. They, they talk about um, bringing heaven to earth. And that's what we are. We are citizens of heaven. You know, uh, eschatology that we've heard for a long time, or probably grown up with, was this, this is not my home, I'm just passing through. And you can find Bible verses to support that idea if your perspective is based on that. And we're waiting for the day when we go to heaven because everything's gonna be glorious there. But I wanna challenge that notion with the fact that you're already seated in Christ in heavenly places. We're already stepped into eternal life. We're already of the new age to come. And yet we still have some overlap so that everywhere that you go, you're an ambassador, you're a signpost, you're a sign of the time so that we implement the victory of Christ. We carry forward the victory. Listen, okay, let me get back to the word. The revelation, I'm not even getting, (laughs) that's what I mean. Notes don't help me because I just, I got too much to say about this subject. That's why it's going to be a series. Aren't you excited about that? (laughs) Uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. That's key that he's showing his servants, not his subjects. 
not people that mentally assent to the idea of a church that I can go and associate with and be a social club, no, to his servants. Those that have realized that we're slaves of righteousness, we're governed by this new age, governed by God having set everything right, and yet we're part of the setting things right because we still look out there and it has not fully touched everyone or everything yet. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That's another characteristic of apocalyptic writing. It always has either a messenger coming in the spirit to speak to someone or the person that's writing the apocalyptic is caught up to heaven. In this book, you see both of those things going on. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so, some of you may or may not know that, but the thing about prophecy, how many of you ever had a prophetic word spoken over you before? How many of you, having that word, have not seen that word come to pass yet? Okay, that's 40%. How about you've had a prophetic word spoken over you and it did come to pass? Yeah, more of that. Now, let me ask you this. Was it because you went, that's nice, and put it under a hat or set it on your mantle and kept going about your life the way it was? Or did the prophetic word actually inspire you to pray into it, to lean into it, to believe God for it? You realize that even the salvation that we are a part of is because it's not about where you're born or following a bunch of rules. It's about faith. And the faith of Abraham was that the word of God came to him and he actually believed him and he stepped into it. It wasn't just going to magically happen. He actually had to partner with the word. So as we talk about this right here, prophecy is the same way. The prophetic word doesn't mean that no matter what happens, that's going to happen. It's for us to partner with God and so say, that's God's desire. But if I don't ever lean into it, I may not see it happen. Now, I know that God has some things that he's declared, and no matter what, they're absolutely going to happen. Heaven and earth are coming together, no matter what. Hallelujah. I mean, there's streets of gold, like transparent glass, no more sea. There's a lot of that. I don't know whether that's literal. So much of the book of Revelation has been made literal in the last couple hundred years. Uh, but that was because of the rise of rationalism in modern thought. It's just influenced the church. There's so much of this that was meant to be seen in the eyes of the Spirit. I want to look at a couple of these words, though, in verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Oh, I want to go back up to verse 1 for a minute. The things that must soon take place. It's interesting because if you look at the time is near 
and this idea of he's speaking to his servants and things that must soon take place, you realize that there's some responsibility on our part to lean in. I say that, responsibility to, on their part to lean in. How many of you know they really leaned in? That this word was to the seven churches of Asia. And boy, did they ever lean in. But the must soon take place is like it's necessary for this to take place very fast, very quickly. Like, don't mess around. I need you to do this. When you start reading the encouragement and the direction that Jesus gives to the churches in verses or chapters two and three, very specific instructions that he gives to them. He identifies himself in, every, in everything. He identifies himself in a way that's typically identified with suffering that they're going through. He talks about, I know what you're up to and I see what's going on. I'm reassuring you that I'm right here in the midst of you and I need you to endure. I need you to conquer. That, that word conquer actually means carry forth the victory. Like he's already won the victory. You understand that, right? And it's our prerogative. It's our opportunity. It's actually our assignment to take the victory of the cross and to implement it into our lives, into our cultures, into our situation and carry it forward. The problem with that most of the time is it looks like a cross. And folks are like, there's gotta be another answer. I don't like that answer. Can it just be that we could talk about helicopters and stuff and nations coming and the Lord coming on a white horse in the middle of it all? The time is near. That time word, there's a lot of words in the Bible that get translated time, but that time word is kairos. What do y'all know about kairos? Anybody understand or heard anything about kairos? It means it's an opportune time. It means the opportunity is at your doorstep. Now, do you think him talking to the seven churches of Asia that he was talking to the church 2,000 years later? Yes and no. <laughs> because all of the word speaks to us, but we have to first understand it through the lens of what was going on there and that it was actually very much written to them. And then how can we understand and actually shape our walk based on what those that have gone before us how they actually walked it out. Aren't you glad for history? Aren't you glad that we are where we are today? God specifically put you here at this time for you to be in the kingdom right now doing what he's called you to do right now. He's saying, look, this stuff has to happen and it has to happen very quickly. I'm encouraging you to carry forth the victory of the cross in all that you do. You will suffer persecution. And the opportunity is at your door right now. You realize that John wrote the book of Revelation in AD 95. He was on the Isle of Patmos. The, most of the other books of the New Testament were written like AD 55 to 65. So you're thinking about 20 years after Christ ascended was crucified and ascended. The Holy Spirit was given 
Can you imagine the first years? People had actually seen Christ with their very eyes. That watched him heal people. That watched him ascend. And that were there on the day of Pentecost when he poured out his spirit and thousands of people. Babel was undone. They were babbling in the tongues and they heard them praising God in their own language. And thousands of people got saved all at once. Can you imagine being alive during that time? And the 20 years in, the, the people that experienced that the apostles are writing out the stories and they're beginning to circulate these letters throughout the churches and the churches are getting together and they're reading and reciting and remembering the things that Jesus said. No sooner did the word start to circulate, persecution began to happen. People were getting martyred. I, even though Jesus was martyred, Stephen was martyred right away, but the, the intensity started to crank up. John, being on the Isle of Patmos, they actually tried to kill him. They boiled him in oil. I think Domitian was the guy in charge at the time. They boiled him in oil and he didn't die. Jesus had even told Peter before he left, if this one remains till I come, what's it to you? Feed my sheep. I think that as we look at how, before we try to get too overwhelmed or too obsessed with how things are gonna roll out, that we need to focus on what did God actually, what did Jesus actually ask us to do? What do you, what, you know, because the reason why we want to know how things are is so that we can plan for what we're going to do. And he says, no, I'm going to tell you what to do. And you don't need to worry about that part. And I think that there's something that's easier for me to give Lauren a list of chores to do than it is for me to go stand in front of her, look her in the eye and love on her and let what goes on in our life come out of a relationship because that's what we're really called to be is to step in in the spirit, to be baptized, to be repeatedly dunked, to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit. You've heard of, you've heard of the, the purpose-driven life. I had a book, uh, uh, or um, yeah, there's a book, The Purpose-Driven Life. I think I even had a purpose-driven life Bible. That's all great, but I feel like there's a little bit more to it than that. I think we, we abs- purpose is huge. We need to know our purpose. That's all your identity. We talk about that a lot around here. Your identity, your purpose, your assignment in God. It, that's, but that shouldn't drive you. That should be your focus. Like, okay, I've got my eyes set on what I've heard God say. But that's not driving me. You know what's driving me? Presence. The presence of God animates me and actually says, go left, go right up, down, and he's so much better. He's so good. Oh my gosh, he's so good. Speaking of him being so good, you can endure anything. You can endure anything when you know that Christ has never left you. He's with you. Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. End of the age. I'm gonna read that in a minute, that passage, but end of the age means that ion. And it means the full consummation. The end means the consummation. You understand that the kingdom has already, it's at hand, it's on you. It's time to seize the kingdom. And that every generation, we get to seize the kingdom. It's our opportunity, it's our prerogative, it's our calling, it's our assignment to seize the kingdom of God. And it's done through 
the presence of the Holy Spirit guiding you daily. It's so exciting. It's so exciting that we can actually cut the cords, burn the ship, as Marty says, to the stuff that the world says we have to be concerned about. We don't have to get all twisted up about what the world's doing. We, we beat according to the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus Christ to surrender our lives and to walk as Christians, little Christs, little anointed ones, little balls of power, little balls of fire. <laughs> Come on. Oh. Just a little bit about church history and about the people that that was written to. The seven churches of Asia, written in AD 95, the first persecution had already began. You all realize there was 10 persecutions in the early church. Does anybody know that? Or maybe you do, maybe you don't. There were, I'm telling you, there were, there were 10 persecutions in the early church. Talk about tribulation. There had never been such absolute brutality for no reason. The, 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 the language used or needed to explain what this would be like is gonna be vivid, very symbolic, very graphic, to understand what it would be like. Now, I'm not saying, as I'm talking about this, I'm not saying anything about your future like that we're gonna be martyred or something. But I am gonna tell you what they experienced, which was a, a warning and a heads up from the Holy Spirit through the voice of John at the time to carry the early church through it. So you wanna, you wanna know about culture and the pressures of the outside world, sorry, affecting and impacting the church. That had always been a thing for the children of God. All the Old Testament you see it over and over and over again that God was doing this thing with his holy people and they were constantly having to consecrate themselves and make sacrifices and all that because they were prone to stumbling themselves and being uh, impacted and influenced by the surrounding culture. The Lord says, it's be a snare to you. It'll actually drive you out of your land. The land will vomit you out if you embrace the other gods and take upon you the practices of the surrounding nations. That's why he was leading them into the land that he gave them. But the, the same challenge has always been there. Christians had the same thing. And so you look in the book of Revelation and the encouragement there is to stand up to the culture. So the culture of the time, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire started out with some kings and almost right away they discovered that was a bad idea. And Rome was a place where a safe haven for murderers and for anybody that was needing to escape and to be free from, say, other uh, people groups and other nations. Rome was built and gained its strength by making and partnering, and they were actually a democracy. They had a senate that started with uh, a, a paternal. They called them the fathers or whatever, that were voting on how to uh, govern and how to rule their citizens. And it wasn't long, and the citizens actually stood up and said, hey, wait a minute. You know, why does it just a select number? Why can't everybody have a voice and an opinion? And they began to leave and they said, oh, well, come back. So Rome actually embraced the voice of the citizen. 
So to be a Roman citizen was actually a big deal. When they gave you uh, a, um, a citizenship paper, so to speak, you now actually had a voice to vote. At the same time, if you kind of got out of line of the sway of all of culture, I mean, they just, you know, whack off with your head. You know, <laughs> you're causing trouble. But they conquered many lands and it grew and it grew. But the success of Rome was absolutely built on this one thing that they allowed conquered people to retain uh, their culture, to retain their ways of life. They embraced them all and let it all be everything. So that's why there were so many gods in the Roman Empire. The Greeks had their gods, you know, and Hellenistic uh, thinking was absolutely embracing that. Like, we'll take all of these different things. And so much of what you read in the New Testament is the Lord making an absolute because there's an exclusivity about Christianity, and it's still exclusive today. One God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In those days, it was considered piety, like you were holy and righteous and pious. You were to be neighborly to the other gods, to tip the hat. And so in doing that, they practiced all kinds of awful things in the way in which they practiced uh, worshiping of their other gods. And the Lord said, no, you shall have no other God before me. It's always been that way. So that was the pressure that the church was under, and that's why that they were actually persecuted and martyred, was because they would be like, I'm not denying Jesus. He's the one way, one God. So it went like this, that in the first 100 years, the church was about 10,000. At the same time, that's when the persecutions began. And there's a book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody ever read that? Fox's Book of Martyrs is kind of going to have a stomach for it because it tells stories about the martyrdom, Peter and Paul and really all of them, and a lot of the church fathers. But you should look it up. And it talks about the 10, there's a, a chapter in there that talks about the 10 persecutions of the early church. And so it, it went from... Uh, probably around 65 AD, about the time we started getting New Testament scripture, all the way to about 315. So 250 years, 300 years of the church being martyred. And as it went, it cranked up in intensity as far as the thousands of people that would be martyred. But guess what else happened at the same time? The light was shown in a dark place. And the church actually grew. I want to read you something about church numbers in the beginning. The more, if you read in, in stories like uh, books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, that even some of the executioners that were torturing the Christians, I mean, they peeled their flesh off. They, you know, it wasn't like they would just stab you and let you die. They would, the most humiliating, gory ways that they could dream up, Nero covering them in pitch and tying them to trees and burning them on fire so that he could look at his garden at night. I mean, just every possible cruel and inhumane way that you could think, Christians died. The very people that Christ was warning them, hey, hold out, hold fast your faith to the end and I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you hidden manna. So 
at the end of the first century, there were fewer than 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. The population at the time numbered some 60 million, which meant that Christians made up one hundredth of one percent, according to the figures of a contemporary sociologist. By the year 200, the number may have increased to a little more than 200,000, still a tiny minority under one percent. By the year 250, however, the number had risen to more than a million, almost two percent of the population. The most striking figure, however, comes two generations later. By the year 300, Christians made up 10% of the population, approximately 6 million, while they were butchering thousands of us. We went from 10,000 to 3 or 6 million. If you were going to write that in a graphic, uh, symbolic, prophetic kind of a way, boy, you would probably dream up some imagery. I say dream up some imagery. It was breathed on by the Holy Spirit because it was a way of telling a story that was common to that era. Man, oh man, the way in which Christians died was so revelatory to the rest of the world to see the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, zero fear and absolute delight and I get to suffer. I become worthy to suffer like Christ. That it blew their minds and the church exploded to the point where at the end it was the downfall of the Roman Empire, amongst other things. But the Roman Empire was about done in 400 AD, even though uh, it split in half and some kept going for another thousand years. But they made Christianity the official religion around 400, and the church had peace for a 1,000 years. It stopped. All that martyrdom stopped. Okay. I realize that it's getting late. I didn't realize it was that late. I saw a few people have to get up and leave, so it, it seems like I could just go on and on and on with this, but I'm going to wrap it up. I think we've heard enough of what the Lord has to say. Uh, one last Bible verse. <laughs> Matthew 28, this is what Jesus left with his people, like what he spoke physically before he ascended. Matthew 28, verse 18. And this, this thinking is echoed in the encouragement that he gave to the churches in the book of Revelation is all saying the same thing. But this is direct speech and not apocalyptic. This is actually an account of what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <laughs> All ability to exercise my will without anybody else having any opinion about it has been given to me. Because of that, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's where our focus is, is discipleship but we're going to have to be presence-driven to make that happen, amen? Baptizing them, repeatedly dunking them, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. You know, if we're not being taught and we're not teaching, then we're not quite there. There's got to be something about our lives and about the early Christian lives that they were teaching and being taught 
There were a community of disciples, learners under discipline that were seizing the Kairos moment, actually stepping into the victory of the cross. The victory of the cross, giving their lives for the sake of the kingdom so that everything changes. When you're in a culture and you're in a a nation and you're in a situation where stuff just seems like it's going to go on and on and on, like the heat that showed up early in May, and it seems oppressive, but everything can change just like that. Cold front blows in. Oh, I forgot this was possible. But everything has changed in Jesus Christ. It's been, his kingdom has been inaugurated in what he did on the cross. And he's handed the Holy Spirit over to us, given us the gift and said, carry forth the victory in my name and with my Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe. Observe means to very carefully pay attention to and to follow. Everything that I've commanded you and behold, like check this out. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm always with you until the consummation, the full manifestation of what I started on the cross and I'm working out in you so that you are in the world as a light. Amen. Why don't we stand up? Lord, we thank you. It's a challenge, Lord. It's easier to make up a doctrine that makes an excuse or says it all depends on you. Lord, it certainly does depend on you, but you've actually encouraged us and challenged us to walk in your victory. So that, Lord, the, the early church, they got it. Lord, thank you that they were so faithful to be examples to us. Lord, we're asking today for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We're asking for the fortitude to actually dig into your word, to partner with your very presence, to stand up, to be a light, to love, and to lay down our lives, God, for the cultures and the communities that we're in, that we're called to. Lord, I'm asking that you would begin to allow us to dig deeper, to see more clearly in your word how it plays out. Lord, I'm asking you for the grace, for our eyes to be on you rather than someone's definition of what the end times are. Lord, we're not looking at newspapers. We're not watching the news, trying to connect it to some Bible verse. Lord, we... We ask that you would reroute our thinking, God, so that our eyes are completely focused on who you are. On our assignment at hand, Lord, we, you asked us to teach the nations to go into every possible place, places where we're already at, and to impact them with the Holy Spirit. That there would be this overflow of the Holy Spirit It comes off of us. It gets all over everyone around us so that we can teach them, Lord, that as a moth to the flame, they would come to the light of your presence. And then we could actually teach them how to be disciples, Lord. How to step into the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you for this kingdom. Yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. 
you are the king. And Lord, your will rules and reigns. We bless you. We honor you today. Lord, I'm asking, why don't you just put your hands out? Lord, I'm asking that you just deposit into each one of our hearts and our lives fresh fire. Fresh fire from the altar, Lord. I thank you, God, that the things that are in heaven actually belong to us. What are we carrying? Lord, I pray that this week you'd answer the question of our hearts. What are we carrying? Lord, is it has always been your heart to encourage us that everything is changing. It will be such a violent, dramatic change, such a dramatic difference from the way in which we see the world today. We grapple, Lord, for words to explain it. release the love of Jesus over you guys. Healing power, the grace of God to fill you up. (laughs) The joy of the Lord to be your strength. For the miraculous to break out in your life. I bless you right now to walk lives of miraculous provision. The protection of God. The nearness of his spirit. All right, so take that with you this week. Let me know how it goes. We've got stuff coming. In the fall, we're going we're gonna to start a, a regular class. It's yet to be determined if we'll do more than one class at a time. But as we step into lives of disciples, of discipleship, it's really, really important that we teach and we're taught. I sit under Alan. I sit under Brad. I sit under Margie. That under Donna Miller, I don't see her this morning. But our first round of classes in the fall will be freedom classes, you know, inner healing. And then we're going to go from inner healing to uh, Donna will teach those. I'm going to be right there eating it up. And then Brad's going to teach um, Father's heart of so sonship and identity. And then we're going to get into theology and then we're going to get into practical ministry I imagine me and Alan will do a lot of the theology teaching and Margie and uh, even probably Sylvia will talk about how to heal people how to prophesy but before we just empower a bunch of people to do this stuff we felt like it would be good and catch a fire this is very much part of the culture but it would be good to start with getting healthy and healed getting free and then you go from that to understanding your, who you are, understanding who God is. And then we could talk about good theology, which all of that's good theology. But then we could talk about how to know what you're talking about so that you don't get eaten alive by the haters and the people that want to argue with you. And then we can step into how to practically heal people. 
And I imagine we'll sprinkle all that in in the, in the meantime. But anyways, that's what's coming. Come on. I only say all that to say that I'm not just up here saying this message to go, oh, that, that's cool information, right? Let's just walk out of here. But no, that we're actually going to take out of his word and we're going to be a discipling church, what he's called us to do. And it's harder. It really is because our culture today, we're swimming upstream. Church has kind of become more of a situation where we can slip in and slip out and not really be a, a part, you know, we can come and get, and that's good too. But we need to have that about us that we're, we have an assignment. We're walking it out. Amen? Love y'all. Bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.